CD 6 The library? Mrs Whitlow. I don't think anyone cleans the library. She looked genuinely puzzled. Why? said Esk. Doesn't it get dusty? Well, said Mrs Whitlow. She thought for a while. I suppose it must do. Since you come to mention it, I never really thought about it. You see, I've cleaned everywhere else, said Esk sweetly. Yes, said Mrs Whitlow. You have, haven't you? Well then, it's just that we've never done it before, said Mrs Whitlow. But for the life of me, I can't think why. Well then, said Esk. Ooh, said the head librarian and backed away from Esk. But she had heard about him and had come prepared. She offered him a banana. The orangutan reached out slowly and then snatched it with a grin of triumph. There may be universes where librarianship is considered a peaceful sort of occupation and where the risks are limited to large volumes falling off the shelves onto one's head, but the keeper of a magic library is no job for the unwary. Spells have power and merely writing them down and shoving them between covers doesn't do anything to reduce it. The stuff leaks. Books tend to react with one another, creating randomised magic with a mind of its own. Books of magic are usually chained to their shelves, but not to prevent them being stolen. One such accident had turned the librarian into an ape, since when he had resisted all attempts to turn him back, explaining in sign language that life as an orangutan was considerably better than life as a human being, because all the big philosophical questions resolved themselves into wondering where the next banana was coming from. Anyway, long arms and prehensile feet were ideal for dealing with high shelves. S gave him the whole bunch of bananas and scurried away amongst the books before he could object. S had never seen more than one book at a time, and so the library was, for all she knew, just like any other library. True, it was a bit odd the way the floor seemed to become the wall in the distance, and there was something strange about the way the shelves played tricks on the eyes and seemed to twist through rather more dimensions than the normal three. And it was quite surprising to look up and see shelves on the ceiling, with the occasional student wandering unconcernedly among them. The truth was that the presence of so much magic distorted the space around it. Down in the stacks, the very denim, or possibly flannelette, of the universe was tortured into very peculiar shapes. The millions of trapped words, unable to escape, bent reality around them. It seemed logical to Esk that among all these books should be one that told you how to read all the others. She wasn't sure how to find it, but deep in her soul she felt it would probably have pictures of cheerful rabbits and happy kittens on the cover. The library certainly wasn't silent. There was the occasional zip and sizzle of a magical discharge, and an octrine spark would flash from shelf to shelf. Chains clinked faintly, and of course there was the faint rustle of thousands of pages in their leather-bound prisons. Esk made sure no one was paying her any attention and pulled at the nearest volume. It sprang open in her hands, and she saw gloomily that there were the same unpleasant types of diagram she had noticed in Simon's book. The writing was entirely unfamiliar, and she was glad about that. It would be horrible to know what all those letters, which seemed to be made up of ugly creatures doing complicated things to each other, actually meant. She forced the cover shut, even though the words seemed to be desperately pushing back. There was a drawing of a creature on the front. It looked suspiciously like one of the things from the cold desert. It certainly didn't look like a happy kitten. Hello. Esk, isn't it? <laughs> How did, did you get here? It was Simon, standing there with a book under each arm. Esk blushed. Granny won't tell me, she said. I think it's something to do with men and women. Simon looked at her blankly. Then he grinned. 
Esk thought about the question a second time. I work here, I sweep up. She waved the staff in explanation. In here? Esk stared at him. She felt alone and lost and more than a little betrayed. Everyone seemed to be busy living their own lives except her. She would spend the rest of her life cleaning up after wizards. It wasn't fair and she'd had enough. Actually, I don't. Actually, I'm learning to read so I can be a wizard. The boy regarded her through his damp eyes for some seconds. Then he gently took the book out of Esk's hands and read its title. Demodology Malfaciorum of Henchance the Unsatisfactory. How did you think you could learn to read this? Um, said Esk. Well, you just keep trying until you can, don't you? Like milking or knitting or... Her voice faded away. I don't know about that. These books could be a bit, well, aggressive. If you d don't be careful, they start reading you. What do you mean? Th they say, said Esk automatically, that there was once a <laughs> wizard who started to read the Nectotelecomnicum and let his mind wander. And the next morning they found all his clothes on the chair and his, his hat on top of them. And the b b book had... Esk put her fingers in her ears, but not too hard in case she missed anything. I don't want to know about it if it's horrid. Had a lot more pages. Esk took her fingers out of her ears. Was there anything on the pages? Simon nodded solemnly. Yes, on every single one of them there was a... No, said Esk. I don't even want to imagine it. I thought reading was more peaceful than that. I mean, Granny read her almanac every day and nothing ever happened to her. I dare say, ordinary table words are all right, Simon conceded magnanimously. Are you absolutely certain? said Esk. It's just that words can have power, said Simon, slotting the book firmly back on its shelf, where it rattled its chains at him. And they do say that p pen is mightier than the sword, said Esk. All right, but which would you rather be hit with? Um, I don't think it's any use me telling you you shouldn't be here, is it? said the young wizard. Esk gave this due consideration. No, she said, I don't think it is. I could send for the porters and have you t t take it away. Yes, but you won't. I just want you to get hurt, you see. I really don't. This can be... S caught a faint swirling in the air above his head. For a moment, she saw them. The great grey shapes from the cold place, watching. And in the calm of the library, when the weight of magic was wearing the universe particularly thin... They had decided to act. Around her, the muted rustlings of the books rose to a desperate rifling of pages. Some of the more powerful books managed to jerk out of their shelves and swing, flapping madly from the end of their chains. A huge grimoire plunged from its eyrie on the topmost shelf, tearing itself free of its chain in the process, and flopped away like a frightened chicken scattering its pages behind it. A magical wind blew Esk's headscarf and her hair streamed out behind her. She saw Simon trying to steady himself against a bookshelf as books exploded around him. The air was thick and tasted of tin. It buzzed. They're trying to get in, she screamed. Simon's tortured face turned to her. A fear-crazed incunable hit him heavily in the small of the back and knocked him onto the heaving floor before it bounced high over the shelves. Esk ducked as a flock of thesauri wheeled past, towing their shelf behind them, and scuttled on hands and knees towards him. That's what's making the book so frightened, she shrieked in his ear. Can't you see them up there? Simon mutely shook his head. A book burst its bindings over them, showering them in pages. Horror, 
can steal into the mind via all the senses. There's the sound of the little meaningful chuckle in the locked dark room, the sight of half a caterpillar in your forkful of salad, the curious smell from the lodger's bedroom, the taste of a slug in the cauliflower cheese. Touch doesn't normally get a look in. But something happened to the floor under Esk's hands. She looked down, her face a rictus of horror, because the dusty floorboards suddenly felt gritty and dry and very, very cold. There was fine silver sand between her fingers. She grabbed the staff and, sheltering her eyes against the wind, waved it at the towering figures above her. It would have been nice to report that a searing flash of pure white fire cleansed the greasy air. It failed to materialise. The staff twisted like a snake in her hand and caught Simon a crack on the side of the head. The grey things wavered and vanished. Reality returned and tried to pretend that it had never left. Silence settled like thick velvet, wave after wave of it. A heavy, echoing silence. A few books dropped heavily out of the air, feeling silly. The floor under Esk's feet was undoubtedly wooden. She kicked it hard to make sure. There was blood on the floor, and Simon lay very quietly in the centre of it. Esk stared down at him, and then up at the still air, and then at the staff. It looked smug. She was aware of distant voices and hurrying feet. A hand, like a fine leather glove, slipped gently into hers, and a voice behind her said, very softly, she turned and found herself staring down into the gentle, inner-tube face of the librarian. He put his finger to his lips in an unmistakable gesture and tugged gently at her hand. I've killed him, she whispered. The librarian shook his head and tugged insistently. He explained. He dragged her reluctantly down a side alleyway in the maze of ancient shelving a few seconds before a party of senior wizards drawn by the noise rounded the corner. The books have been fighting again. Oh, no. It'll take ages to capture all the spells again. You know they go and find places to hide. Who's that on the floor? There was a pause. He's knocked out. A shelf caught him by the looks of it. Who is he? That new lad, you know, the one they say has got a whole head full of brains. If that shelf had been a bit closer, we'd be able to see if they were right. You two, get him along to the infirmary. The rest of you better get these books rounded up. Where's the damn librarian? He ought to know better than to let a critical mass build up. Esk glanced sideways at the orangutan, who waggled his eyebrows at her. He pulled a dusty volume of gardening spells out of the shelves beside him, extracted a soft brown banana from the recesses behind it, and ate it with the quiet relish of one who knows that whatever the problems are, they belong firmly to human beings. She looked the other way at the staff in her hand, and her lips went thin. She knew her grip hadn't slipped. The staff had lunged at Simon, with murder in its heartwood. The boy lay on the hard bed in a narrow room, a cold towel folded across his forehead. Treetlan Cutangle watched him carefully. How long has it been? said Cutangle. Treetle shrugged. Three days. And he hasn't come around once? No. Cutangle sat down heavily on the edge of the bed and pinched the bridge of his nose wearily. Simon had never looked particularly healthy, but now his face had a horrible sunken look. A brilliant mind, that one, he said. His explanation of the fundamental principles of magic and matter quite astounding. Treetle nodded. The way he just absorbs knowledge, said Cutangle. I've been a working wizard all my life, and somehow I never really understood magic until he explained it. So clear, so, well, obvious. Everyone says that, said Treetle gloomily. They say 
It's like having a hoodwink pulled off and seeing the daylight for the first time. That's exactly it, said Qtango. He's sorcerer material, sure enough. You were right to bring him here. There was a thoughtful pause. Only, said Treetle. Only what? said Qtango. Only what was it you understood? said Treetle. That's what's bothering me. I mean, can you explain it? How do you mean explain? Qtango looked worried. What he keeps talking about, said Treetle, a hint of desperation in his voice. Oh, it's the genuine stuff, I know, but what exactly is it? Qtango looked at him, his mouth open. Eventually he said, Oh, that's easy. Magic fills the universe, you see, and every time the universe changes, no, I mean, every time magic is invoked, the universe changes, only in every direction at once, do you see, and he moved his hands uncertainly, trying to recognize a spark of comprehension in Treetle's face. To put it another way, any piece of matter, like an orange, or the world, or... Or a crocodile, suggested Treetle. Yes, a crocodile, or whatever, is basically shaped like a carrot. I don't remember that bit, said Treetle. I'm sure that's what he said, said Qtangle. He was starting to sweat. No, I remember the bit where he seemed to suggest that if you went far enough in any direction, you would see the back of your head, Treetle insisted. You sure he didn't mean someone else's head? Treetle thought for a bit. No, I'm pretty sure he said the back of your own head, he said. I think he said he could prove it. They considered this in silence. Finally, Qtangle spoke very slowly and carefully. I look at it like this, he said. Before I heard him talk, I was like everyone else. You know what I mean? I was confused and uncertain about all the little details of life, but now, he brightened up, while I'm still confused and uncertain, it's on a much higher plane, do you see? And at least I know I'm bewildered about the really fundamental and important facts of the universe. Treetle nodded. I hadn't looked at it like that, he said, but you're absolutely right. He's really pushed back the boundaries of ignorance. There's so much about the universe we don't know. They both savoured the strange warm glow of being much more ignorant than ordinary people who were ignorant of only ordinary things. Then Treetle said, I just hope he's all right. He's over the fever, but he just doesn't seem to want to wake up. A couple of servants came in with a bowl of water and fresh towels. One of them carried a rather tatty broomstick. As they began to change the sweat-soaked sheets under the boy, the two wizards left still discussing the vast vistas of unknowingness that Simon's genius had revealed to the world. Granny waited until their footsteps had died away and took off her headscarf. Damn thing, she said. Esk, go and listen at the door. She removed the towel from Simon's head and felt his temperature. It was very good of you to come, said Esk, and you so busy with your work and everything. Hmm. Granny pursed her lips. She pulled up Simon's eyelids and sought his pulse. She laid an ear on his xylophone chest and listened to his heart. She sat for some time quite motionless, probing around inside his head. She frowned. Is he all right? said Esk anxiously. Granny looked at the stone walls. Drat this place, she said. It's no place for sick people. Yes, but is he all right? What? Granny was startled out of her thoughts. Oh, yes, probably, wherever he is. Esk stared at her, and then at Simon's body. Nobody's home, said Granny, simply. What do you mean? Listen to the child, said Granny. You'd think I taught her nothing. I mean his mind's wandering. He's gone out of his head. She looked at Simon's body with something verging on admiration. Quite surprising, really, she added. I never yet met a wizard who could borrow. She turned to Esk, whose mouth was a horrified O. Oh.
I remember when I was a girl, old nanny Annapol went wandering, got too wrapped up with being a vixen, as I recall. Took us days to find her. And then there was you, too. I never would have found you if it wasn't for that staff thing. And what have you done with it, girl? It hit him, Esk muttered. It tried to kill him. I threw it in the river. Not a nice thing to do after it saved you, said Granny. It saved me by hitting him. Didn't you realize he was calling to them things? That's not true. Granny stared into Esk's defiant eyes, and the thought came to her. I've lost her. Three years of work down the privy. She couldn't be a wizard, but she might have been a witch. Why isn't it true, Miss Clever? She said. He wouldn't do something like that. Esk was near to tears. I heard him speak. He's, well, he's not evil. He's a brilliant person. He nearly understands how everything works. He's, I expect he's a very nice boy, said Granny sourly. I never said he was a black wizard, did I? They're horrible things, Esk sobbed. He wouldn't call out to them. He wants everything that they're not. And you're a wicked old. The slap rang like a bell. Esk staggered back, white with shock. Granny stood with her hand upraised, trembling. She'd struck Esk once before. The blow a baby gets to introduce it to the world and give it a rough idea of what to expect from life. But that had been the last time. In three years under the same roof, there had been cause enough, when milk had been left to boil over or the goats had been carelessly left without water, but a sharp word or a sharper silence, had done more than force ever could and left no bruises. She grabbed Esk firmly by the shoulders and stared into her eyes. Listen to me, she said urgently. Didn't I always say to you that if you use magic, you should go through the world like a knife goes through water? Didn't I say that? Esk, mesmerized like a cornered rabbit, nodded. And you thought that was just old granny's way, didn't you? But the fact is that if you use magic, you draw attention to yourself. From them. They watch the world all the time. Ordinary minds are just vague to them. They hardly bother with them. But a mind with magic in it shines out, you see. It's a beacon to them. It's not darkness. It calls them. It's light. Light that creates the shadows. But, but why are they interested? What do they want? Life and shape said Granny. She sagged and let go of Esk. They're pathetic, really, she said. They've got no life or shape themselves, but what they can steal. They could no more survive in this world than a fish could live in a fire, but that doesn't stop them trying. They're just bright enough to hate us because we're alive. Esk shivered. She remembered the gritty feel of the cold sand. What are they? I always thought they were just a sort of, a sort of demon. Nah, no one really knows. They're just the things from the dungeon dimensions, outside the universe, that's all, shadow creatures. She turned back to the prone form of Simon. You wouldn't have any idea where he is, would you? She said, looking shrewdly at Esk. Not gone off flying with the seagulls, has he? Esk shook her head. No, said Granny. I didn't think so. They've got him, haven't they? It wasn't a question. Esk nodded, her face a mask of misery. It's not your fault, said Granny. His mind gave them an opening. And when he was knocked out, they took it back with them. Only... She drummed her fingers on the edge of the bed and appeared to reach a decision. Who is the most important wizard around here? She demanded. Um, Lord Cutangle, said Esk. He's the Arch-Chancellor. He's one of the ones who was in here. The fat one, or the one like a streak of vinegar? Esk dragged her mind from the image of Simon on the cold desert and found herself saying, 
He's an eighth-level wizard and a thirty-three-degree mage, actually. You mean he's bent? said Granny. All this hanging around wizards has made you take them seriously, my girl. They all call themselves the Lord High This and the Imperial That. It's all part of the game. Even magicians do it. You'd think they'd be more sensible at least, but no. They call around saying they're the amazing Bonko and Doris. Anyway, where is this high rum tiddly-poo? They'll be at dinner in the Great Hall, said Esk. Can he bring Simon back then? That's the difficult part, said Granny. I dare say we could all get something back easily enough, walking and talking just like anyone. Whether it would be Simon is quite another sack of ferrets. She stood up. Let's find this great hall, then. No time to waste. Um, women aren't allowed in, said Esk. Granny stopped in the doorway. Her shoulders rose. She turned around very slowly. What did you say? She said. Did these old ears deceive me? And don't say they did, because they didn't. Sorry, said Esk. Force of habit. I can see you've been getting ideas below your station, said Granny coldly. Go and find someone to watch over the lad, and let's see what's so great about this hall that I mustn't set foot in it. And thus it was, while the entire faculty of Unseen University were dining in the venerable hall, the doors were flung back with a dramatic effect that was rather spoiled when one of them rebounded off a waiter and caught Granny a crack on the shin. Instead of the defiant stride she had intended to make across the checkered floor, she was forced to half-hop, half-limp but she hoped that she hopped with dignity. Esk hurried along behind her, acutely aware of the hundreds of eyes that were turned towards them. The roar of conversation and the clatter of cutlery faded away. A couple of chairs were knocked over. At the far end of the hall, she could see the most senior wizards at their high table, which in fact bobbed a few feet off the floor. They were staring. A medium-grade wizard... Esk recognised him as a lecturer in applied astrology, rushed towards them, waving his hands. No, 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 he shouted. Wrong door, you must go away. Don't mind me, said Granny calmly, pushing past him. No, no, it's against the law. You must go away now. Ladies are not allowed in here. I'm not a lady, I'm a witch, said Granny. She turned to Esk. Is he very important? I don't think so, said Esk. Right. Granny turned to the lecturer. Go and find me an important wizard, please, quickly. Esk tapped her on the back. A couple of wizards, with a rather greater presence of mind, had nipped smartly out of the door behind them, and now several college porters were advancing threateningly up the hall to the cheers and catcalls of the students. Esk had never much liked the porters, who lived a private life in their lodge, but now she felt a pang of sympathy for them. Two of them reached out hairy hands and grabbed Granny's shoulders. The arm disappeared behind her back and there was a brief flurry of movement that ended with the men hopping away, clutching bits of themselves and swearing. Hatpin, said Granny. She grabbed Esk with her free hand and swept towards the high table, glaring at anyone who so much as looked as if they were going to get in her way. The younger students, who knew free entertainment when they saw it, stamped and cheered and banged their plates on the long tables. The high table settled on the tiles with a thump, and the senior wizards hurriedly lined up behind Cutangle as he tried to summon up his reserves of dignity. His efforts didn't really work. It's very hard to look dignified with a napkin tucked into one's collar. He raised his hands for silence, and the hall waited expectantly as Granny and Esk approached him. Granny was looking interestedly at the ancient paintings and statues of bygone mages. Who are them buggers? she said out of the corner of her mouth. They used to be the chief wizards, whispered Esk. They look constipated. I never met a wizard who was regular, said Granny. They're a nuisance to dust, that's all I know, said Esk. Q-Tangle stood with his legs planted wide apart, arms akimbo, and stomach giving an impression of a beginner's ski slope. The whole of him, therefore, adopting a pose usually associated with Henry VIII, but with an option of Henry IX and X as well. Well, he said, what is the meaning of this outrage? Is he important? said Granny to Esk. I, madam, am the Arch-Chancellor, and I happen to run this university. 
And you, madam, are trespassing in very dangerous territory indeed. I warn you that stop looking at me like that. Cutangle staggered backwards, his hands raised to ward off Granny's gaze. The wizards behind him scattered, turning over tables in their haste to avoid the stare. Granny's eyes had changed. Esk had never seen them like this before. They were perfectly silver, like little round mirrors reflecting all they saw. Gutangle was a vanishing small dot in their depths, his mouth open, his tiny matchstick arms waving in desperation. The Arch-Chancellor backed into a pillar, and the shock made him recover. He shook his head irritably, cupped a hand, and sent a stream of white fire streaking towards the witch. Without dropping her iridescent stare, Granny raised a hand and deflected the flames towards the roof. There was an explosion and a shower of tile fragments. Her eyes widened. Cutangle vanished. Where he had been standing, a huge snake coiled, poised to strike. Granny vanished. Where she had been standing was a large wicker basket. The snake became a giant reptile from the mists of time. The basket became the snow wind of the ice giants coating the struggling monster with ice. The reptile became a saber-toothed tiger crouched to spring, the gale became a bubbling tar pit. The tiger managed to become an eagle, stooping. The tar pits became a tufted hood. Then the images began to flicker as shape replaced shape. Stroboscope shadows danced around the hall. A magical wind sprang up, thick and greasy, striking octarine sparks from beards and fingers. In the middle of it all, Esk, peering through streaming eyes, could just make out the two figures of Granny and Cutangle, glossy statues in the mists of hurtling images. She was also aware of something else, a high-pitched sound almost beyond hearing. She had heard it before on the cold plain, a busy, chittering sound, a beehive noise, an anthill sound. They're coming! She screamed about the din. They're coming now! She scrambled out from behind the table where she had taken refuge from the magical duel and tried to reach Granny. A gust of raw magic lifted her off her feet and bowled her into a chair. The buzzing was louder now, so that the air roared like a three-week corpse on a summer's day. Esk made another attempt to reach Granny, and recoiled when green fire roared along her arm and singed her hair. She looked around wildly for the other wizards, but those who had fled from the effects of the magic were cowering behind overturned furniture while the occult storm raged over their heads. Esk ran down the length of the hall and out into the dark corridor, Shadows curled around her as she hurried, sobbing, up the steps and along the buzzing corridors towards Simon's narrow room. Something would try to enter the body, Granny had said. Something that would walk and talk like Simon, but would be something else. A cluster of students were hovering anxiously outside the door. They turned pale faces towards Esk as she darted towards them. They were sufficiently shaken to draw back nervously in the face of her determined progress. Something's in there, said one of them. We can't open the door. They looked at her expectantly. Then one of them said, You wouldn't have a pass key by any chance? Esk grabbed the door handle and turned it. It moved slightly and then spun back with such force it nearly took the skin off her hands. The chittering inside rose to a crescendo, but there was another noise too, like leather flapping. You're wizards! she screamed. Bloody well whiz! We haven't done telekinesis yet, said one of them. I was ill when we did fire-throwing. Actually, I'm not very good at dematerialization. Esk went to the door and then stopped with one foot in the air. She remembered Granny talking about how even buildings had a mind, if they were old enough. The university was very old. She stepped carefully to one side and ran her hands over the ancient stones. It had to be done carefully so as not to frighten it. And now she could feel the mind in the stones. Slow and simple, but still mind. It pulsed around her. She could feel the little sparkles deep in the rock. Something was hooting behind the door. The three students watched in astonishment as Esk stood, rock still with her hands and forehead pressed against the wall. She was almost there. She could feel the weight of herself, the ponderousness of her body, the distant memories of the dawn of time when rock was molten and free. For the first time in her life, she knew what it was like to have balconies. She moved gently through the building mind, refining her impressions, looking as fast as she dared for this corridor, this door. 
She stretched out one arm very carefully. The students watched as she uncurled one finger very slowly. The door hinges began to creak. There was a moment of tension, and then the nails sprang from their hinges and clattered into the wall behind her. The planks began to bend as the door still tried to force itself open against the strength of whatever was holding it shut. The wood billowed. Beams of blue light lanced out into the corridor, moving and dancing as indistinct shapes shuffled through the blinding brilliance inside the room. The light was misty and actinic, the sort of light to make Steven Spielberg reach for his copyright lawyer. Esk's hair leapt from her head so that it looked like an ambulant dandelion. Little fire snakes of magic crackled across her skin as she stepped through the doorway. The students outside watched in horror as she disappeared into the light. It vanished in a silent explosion. When they eventually found enough courage to look inside the room, they saw nothing there but the sleeping body of Simon. And Esk, silent and cold on the floor, breathing very slowly. And the floor was covered with a fine layer of silver sand. Esk floated through the mists of the world, noticing with a curious impersonal feeling the precise way in which she passed through solid matter. There were others with her. She could hear their chittering. Fury rose like bile. She turned and set out after the noise, fighting the seductive forces that kept telling her how nice it would be just to relax her grip on her mind and sink into a warm sea of nothingness. Being angry, that was the thing. She knew it was most important to stay really angry. The disc world fell away and lay below her as it did on the day she had been an eagle. But this time, the Circle Sea was below her. It certainly was circular, as if God had run out of ideas. And beyond it lay the arms of the continent, and the long chain of the ramtops marching all the way to the hub. There were other continents she had never heard of, and tiny island chains. As her point of view changed, the rim came into sight, it was night-time, and since the disk's orbiting sun was below the world, it lit up the long waterfall that girdled the edge. It also lit up Great Artuan, the world turtle. Esk had often wondered if the turtle was really a myth. It seemed a lot of trouble to go to, to just move a world. But there it was, almost as big as the disk it carried, frosted with stardust and pocked with meteor craters. Its head passed in front of her, and she looked directly into an eye big enough to float all the fleets in the world. She had heard it said that if you look far enough into the direction that great Artuan was staring, you would see the end of the universe. Maybe it was just the set of its beak, but great Artuan looked vaguely hopeful, even optimistic. Perhaps the end of everything wasn't as bad as all that. Dreamlike, she reached out and tried to borrow the biggest mind in the universe. She stopped herself just in time. Like a child with a toy toboggan who expected a gentle slope and suddenly looks out of the magnificent mountains, snow-covered, stretching into the ice fields of infinity. No one would ever borrow that mind. It would be like trying to drink all the sea. The thoughts that moved through it were as big and as slow as glaciers. Beyond the disk were stars, and there was something wrong with them. They were swirling like snowflakes. Every now and again they would settle down and look as immobile as they always did. And then they'd suddenly take it into their heads to dance. Real stars shouldn't do that, Esk decided. Which meant she wasn't looking at real stars. Which meant she wasn't exactly in a real place. But a chittering close at hand reminded her that she could almost certainly really die if she once lost track of those noises. She turned and pursued the sounds through the stellar snowstorm. And the stars jumped and settled, jumped and settled. As she swooped upward, Esk tried to concentrate on everyday things, because if she let her mind dwell on precisely what it was she was following, then she knew she would turn back, and she wasn't sure she knew the way. She tried to remember the eighteen herbs that cured earache, which kept her occupied for a while because she could never recall the last four. 
a star swooped past and then was violently jerked away. It was about twenty feet across. When she ran out of herbs, she started on the diseases of goats, which took quite a long time because goats can catch a lot of things that cows can catch, plus a lot of things, plus that sheep, plus catch, plus a complete range of horrible ailments of their very own. When she had finished listing wooden udder, ear wilt, and the octorine gargit, she tried to recall the complex code of dots and lines that they used to cut in the trees around Badass, so that lost villagers could find their way home on snowy nights. She was as far as dot, 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 dash, dot, dash, hub by turnwise, one mile from the village, when the universe around her vanished with a faint pop. She fell forward, hit something hard and gritty, and rolled to a halt. The grittiness was sand, fine, dry, cold sand. You could tell that even if you dug down several feet, it would be just as cold and just as dry. Esk lay with her face in it for a moment, summoning the courage to look up. She could just see, a few feet away from her, the hem of someone's dress. Something's dress, she corrected herself. Unless it was a wing. Could be a wing. A particularly tatty and leathery one. Her eyes followed it up until she found a face. Higher than a house. Outlined against the starry sky. Its owner was obviously trying to look nightmarish but had tried too hard. The basic appearance was that of a chicken that had been dead for about two months, but the unpleasant effect was rather spoiled by warthog tusks, moth antennae, wolf ears, and a unicorn spike. The whole thing had a self-assembled look, as if the owner had heard about anatomy but couldn't quite get to grips with the idea. It was staring, but not at her. Something behind her occupied all its interest. Esk turned her head very slowly. Simon was sitting cross-legged in the centre of a circle of things. There were hundreds of them, as still and silent as statues, watching him with reptilian patience. There was something small and angular held in his cupped hands. It gave off a fuzzy blue light that made his face look strange. Other shapes lay on the ground beside him, each in its little soft glow. They were regular sorts of shapes that Granny dismissed airily as geometry. Cubes, many-sided diamonds, cones, even a globe. Each one was transparent, and inside was... Esk edged closer. No one was taking any notice of her. Inside a crystal sphere that had been tossed aside onto the sand floated a blue-green ball crisscrossed with tiny white cloud patterns that could almost have been continents if anyone was silly enough to try and live on a ball. It might have been a sort of model, except something about its glow told Esk that it was quite real and probably very big and not, in every sense, totally inside the sphere. She put it down very gently and sidled over to a ten-sided block in which floated a much more acceptable world. It was probably disc-shaped, but instead of the rimfall, there was a wall of ice, and instead of the hub, there was a gigantic tree, so big that its roots merged into mountain ranges. A prism beside it held another slowly turning disc surrounded by little stars. But there were no ice walls around this one, just a red-gold thread that turned out on closer inspection to be a snake. A snake big enough to encircle a world. For reasons best known to itself, it was biting its own tail. Esk turned the prism over and over curiously, noticing how the little disc inside stayed resolutely upright. Simon giggled softly. Esk replaced the snake disc and peered carefully over his shoulder. He was holding a small glass pyramid. There were stars in it, and occasionally he would give it a little shake so that the stars swirled up like snow in the wind and then settled back in their places. Then he would giggle. And beyond the stars? It was the disc world. A great Artuan, no bigger than a small saucer, toiled along under a world that looked like the work of an obsessive jeweller. Jiggle, swirl. Jiggle, swirl, giggle. 
there were already hairline cracks in the glass. Esk looked at Simon's blank eyes and then up into the hungry faces of the nearest things. And then she reached across and pulled the pyramid out of his hands and turned and ran. The things didn't stir as she scurried towards them, bent almost double with the pyramid clasped tightly to her chest. But suddenly her feet were no longer running over the sand and she was being lifted into the frigid air and a thing with a face like a drowned rabbit turned slowly towards her and extended a talon. You're not really here, Esk told herself. It's only a sort of dream, what Granny calls an analogy. You can't really be hurt. It's all imagination. There's absolutely no harm can come to you. It's really inside your mind. I wonder if it knows that. The talon picked her out of the air and the rabbit face split like a banana skin. There was no mouth, just a dark hole, as if the thing was itself an opening to an even worse dimension, a place by comparison with which freezing sand and moonless moonlight would be a jolly afternoon at the seaside. Esk held the disc pyramid and flailed with her free hand at the claw around her. It had no effect. The darkness loomed over her, a gateway to total oblivion. She kicked it as hard as she could, which was not, given the circumstances, very hard. But where her foot struck, there was an explosion of white sparks and a pop, which would have been a much more satisfying bang if the thin air here didn't suck the sound away. The thing screeched like a chainsaw, encountering deep inside an unsuspecting sapling, a lurking and long-forgotten nail. The others around it set up a sympathetic buzzing. Esk kicked again and the thing shrieked and dropped her to the sand. She was bright enough to roll, with the tiny world hugged protectively to her. Because even in a dream, a broken ankle can be painful. The thing lurched uncertainly above her. Esk's eyes narrowed. She put the world down very carefully hit the thing very hard around the point where its shins would be, if there were shins under that cloak, and picked up the world again in one neat movement. The creature howled, bent double, and then toppled slowly, like a sackful of coat hangers. When it hit the ground, it collapsed into a mass of disjointed limbs. The head rolled away and rocked to a standstill. Is that all? Esk. They can hardly walk even. When you hit them, they just fall over. The nearest things chittered and tried to back away as she marched determinedly towards them. But since their bodies seemed to be held together more or less by wishful thinking, they weren't very good at it. She hit one, which had a face like a small family of squid, and it deflated into a pile of twitching bones and bits of fur and odd ends of tentacles very much like a Greek meal. Another was slightly more successful and had begun to shamble uncertainly away before Esk caught it a crack on one of its five shins. It flailed desperately as it fell and brought down another two. By then the others had managed to lurch out of her way and stood watching from a distance. Esk took a few steps towards the nearest one. It tried to move away and fell over. They may have been ugly, they may have been evil, but when it came to poetry in motion, the things had all the grace and coordination of a deck chair. Esk glared at them and took a look at the disc in its glass pyramid. All the excitement didn't seem to have disturbed it a bit. She'd been able to get out, if this indeed was out, and if the disc could be said to be in, but how was one supposed to get back? Somebody laughed. It was the sort of laugh, basically, it was Pchkzani Kwikov. This epiglottis throttling word is seldom used on the disc except by highly paid stunt linguists and, of course, the tiny tribe of the Katani, who invented it. It has no direct synonym, although the Kumhuli word, squirnt, the feeling upon finding that previous occupant of the privy has used all the paper, begins to approach it in general depth of feeling. The closest translation is as follows. 
the nasty little sound of a sword being unsheathed right behind one at just the point when one thought one had disposed of one's enemies. Although Katani speakers say that it does not convey the cold, sweating, heart-stopping, gut-freezing sense of the original. It was that kind of laugh. Esk turned around slowly. Simon drifted towards her across the sand, with his hands cupped in front of him. His eyes were tight shut. Did you really think it would be as easy as that? He said, or something said. It didn't sound like Simon's voice, but like dozens of voices speaking at once. Simon, she said uncertainly. He is of no further use to us, said the thing with Simon's shape. He has showed us the way, child. Now give us our property. Esk backed away. I don't think it belongs to you, she said. Whoever you are. The face in front of her opened its eyes. There was nothing there but blackness, not a colour, just holes into some other space. We could say that if you gave it to us. We would be merciful. We could say we would let you go from here in your own shape. But there wouldn't really be much point in saying that, would there? I wouldn't believe you, said Esk. Well, then. The Simon thing grinned. You're only putting off the inevitable, it said. Suits me. We could take it anyway. Take it, then. But I don't think you can. You can't take anything unless it's given to you. Can you? They circled round. You'll give it to us, said the Simon thing. Some of the other things were approaching now, striding back across the desert with horrible jerky movements. You'll get tired, it continued. We could wait. We're very good at waiting. It made a feint to the left, but Esk swung around to face it. That doesn't matter, she said. I'm only dreaming this, and you can't get hurt in dreams. The thing paused and looked at her with its empty eyes. Have you got a word in your world? I think it's called psychosomatic. Never heard of it, snapped Esk. It means you can get hurt in your dreams. And what is so interesting is that if you die in your dreams, you stay here. That would be nice. Esk glanced sideways at the distant mountains, sprawled on the chilly horizon like melted mud pies. There were no trees, not even any rocks, just sand and cold stars, and... She felt the movement rather than heard it, and turned with the pyramid held between her hands like a club. It hit the Simon thing in mid-leap with a satisfying thump. But as soon as it hit the ground, it somersaulted forward and bounced upright with unpleasant ease. But it had heard her gasp and had seen the brief pain in her eyes. It paused. Ah, that hurt you, did it not? You don't like to see another one suffer, yes? Not this one, it seems. It turned and beckoned, and two of the tall things lurched over to it and gripped it firmly by the arms. Its eyes changed, the darkness faded, and then Simon's own eyes looked out of his face. He stared up at the things on either side of him and struggled briefly, but one had several pairs of tentacles wrapped around his wrists and the other was holding his arms in the world's largest lobster claw. Then he saw Esk, and his eyes fell to the little glass pyramid. Run away, he hissed. Take it away from here. Don't let them get it. He grimaced as the claw tightened on his arm. Is this a trick, said Esk. Who are you really? Don't you recognize me, he said wretchedly. What are you doing in my dream? If this is a dream, then I'd like to wake up, please. Esk. Listen, you must run away now, do you understand? Don't stand there with your mouth open. Give it to us, said a cold voice inside Esk's head. 
Esk looked down at the glass pyramid with its unconcerned little world and stared up at Simon, her mouth an O oh of puzzlement. But what is it? Look hard at it. Esk peered through the glass. If she squinted, it seemed that the little disc was granular, as if it was made up of millions of tiny specks. If she looked hard at the specks. It's just numbers, she said. The whole world, it's all made up of numbers. It's not the world, it's an idea of the world, said Simon. I created it for them. They can't get through to us, do you see? But ideas have got a shape here. Ideas are real. Give it to us. But ideas can't hurt anyone. I turn things into numbers to understand them, but they just want to control, Simon said bitterly. They burrowed into my numbers like... He screamed. Give it to us or we will take him to bits. Esk looked up at the nearest nightmare face. How do I know I can trust you? She said. You can't trust us, but you have no choice. Esk looked at the ring of faces that not even a necrophile could love. Faces put together from a fishmonger's midden, faces picked randomly from things that lurked in deep ocean holes and haunted caves, faces that were not human enough to gloat or leer, but had all the menace of a suspiciously V-shaped ripple near an incautious bather. She couldn't trust them, but she had no choice. Something else was happening, in a place as far away as the thickness of a shadow. The student wizards had run back to the Great Hall, where Q-Tangle and Granny Weatherwax were still locked in the magical equivalent of Indian arm wrestling. The flagstones under Granny were half-melted and cracked, and the table behind Q-Tangle had taken root and already bore a rich crop of acorns. One of the students had earned several awards for bravery by daring to tug at Q-Tangle's cloak. And now they were crowded into the narrow room, looking at the two bodies. Q-Tangle summoned doctors of the body and doctors of the mind, and the room buzzed with magic as they got to work. Granny tapped him on the shoulder. A word in your ear, young man, she said. Hardly young, madam, sighed Q-Tangle. Hardly young. He felt drained. It had been decades since he'd dueled in magic, although it was common enough among students. He had a nasty feeling that Granny would have won eventually. Fighting her was like swatting a fly on your own nose. He couldn't think what had come over him to try it. Granny led him out into the passage and around the corner to a window seat. She sat down, leaning her broomstick against the wall. Rain drummed heavily on the roofs outside, and a few zigzags of lightning indicated a storm of ram-top proportions approaching the city. That was quite an impressive display she said. You nearly won once or twice there. Oh, said Q-Tangle, brightening up. Do you really think so? Granny nodded. Q-Tangle patted at various bits of his robe until he located a tarry bag of tobacco and a roll of paper. His hands shook as he fumbled a few shreds of second-hand pipeweed into a skinny homemade. He ran the wretched thing across his tongue and barely moistened it. Then a dim remembrance of propriety welled up in the back of his mind. Um, he said, do you mind if I smoke? Granny shrugged. Q-Tangle struck a match on the wall and tried desperately to navigate the flame and the cigarette into approximately the same position. Granny gently took the match from his trembling hand and lit it for him. Q-Tangle sucked on the tobacco, had a ritual cough and settled back. The glowing end of the roll-up the only light in the dim corridor. They've gone wandering, said Granny at last. I know, said Q-Tangle. Your wizards won't be able to get them back. I know that too. They might get something back, though. I wish you hadn't said that. There was a pause while they contemplated what might come back. Inhabiting living bodies acting almost like the original inhabitants. It's probably my fault, they said in unison, and stopped in astonishment. You first, madam, said Q-Tangle. 
Them cigarette things, asked Granny, are they good for the nerves? Hutangle opened his mouth to point out, very courteously, that tobacco was a habit reserved for wizards, but thought better of it. He extended the tobacco pouch towards Granny. She told him about Esk's birth and the coming of the old wizard, and the staff and Esk's forays into magic. By the time she had finished, she had succeeded in rolling a tight, thin cylinder that burned with a small blue flame and made her eyes water. <coughs> and I don't know that shaky nerves wouldn't be better, she wheezed. Cutangle wasn't listening. This is quite astonishing, he said. You say the child didn't suffer in any way? Not that I noticed, said Granny. The staff seemed, well, on her side, if you know what I mean. And where is the staff now? She said she threw it in the river. The old wizard and the elderly witch stared at each other, their faces illuminated by a flare of lightning outside. Cutangle shook his head. The river's flooding, he said. It's a million to one chance. Granny smiled grimly. It was the sort of smile that wolves ran away from. Granny grasped her broomstick purposefully. Million to one chances, she said. Crop up nine times out of ten. End of CD 6